me out, brother. Yeah, okay. Good morning, church. My name is Merrick Potter. I'm on the leadership team here, officially serving as a pastor in training. And what a joy it is to open up the Bible together with you. So please turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 12, as we continue our study in Matthew. Title this morning of this sermon is Known by Your Fruit. Known by Your Fruit. And church, in in the Florida Everglades, there's a tree called the Manchineel tree. And this tree gets to about 49 feet high maximum, and it has nice shiny leaves. And it has yellow-green flowers, and it produces small apple-like fruit. And when the Spanish conquistadors found this tree, when they explored Florida back in the 1500s, they gave it a name, and they called it La Manzanilla de la Muerte, Little Apples of Death. Because this tree has now been declared by the Guinness Book of World Records the deadliest tree in the world. One bite from the fruit can kill you. If the tree burns, its smoke can blind you if you get too close. Touching the bark can cause blisters on your fingers or anything that ends up touching the bark. And get this, near, near these trees, are, there's even little signs. You can, you can look up what these signs look like. There's little, tre- there's little signs that say, don't go near this tree, especially when it rains, because if you're under this tree when it rains, the sap will drip down, and it will burn you. So don't go in the Florida Ever- Everglades and go find this tree when it is raining. And so if you know anything about this tree, because now you do know, and you even know what the fruit looks like in case you ever are hiking through the Everglades, if you know anything about this, you would be, it'd be unlikely that you would take one of these fruits and get one of these seeds and plant it in the ground and go, yeah, I know, I've heard the stories. I know what you're not supposed to do. I know these things are called little apples of death, but guess what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grow a Georgia peach tree with this seed or a plum tree or I'm going to get Macintosh apples by planting this thing in the ground. That's what's going to happen. No, because you know because you already know this, or you just learned about it five minutes ago, that a manchineel tree, the seed from it, it's going to produce a manchineel tree, which will grow little apples of death, ultimately, because that's what you get when you plant that seed. And this tree, this tree provides a wonderful illustration of, just a good illustration of, of the trees and the fruit imagery that Jesus talks about in our passage this morning. His teaching in verses 33 to 37 comes in the context of rising opposition against him and his message. And in this chapter, he's engaged in a conflict with the Pharisees. They have just accused him of being allied with Satan. That is their accusation. And now he's replying. We saw last week how he began his reply. And we saw this week, we will see this week how he grabs this moment to instruct the Pharisees, to instruct the crowd where that wild accusation came from. Came from diseased, distorted trees with roots that are entrenched in sin that produce things like little apples of death. Let's listen now closely to the teachings of Jesus here in Matthew 12, starting with verse 33, recorded for us in the inerrant word of God. 
Verse 33, Jesus says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. The words of Christ. Lord, now... Bless the preaching of your word. Please open up our hearts to receive this as we submit ourselves to it. We want to be challenged, but we want to be encouraged. We want to be led out by you. So please awaken our souls now to, to hear what you have to say to us and to apply it. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, church, who among us isn't aware of times when we've said words that were not pretty, that were like little rotten fruit thrown out into the air for anybody who might see them? You see, every one of our words either respects those made in the image of God or it devalues those made in the image of God. What we say matters, and what comes out of our mouth, the fruit, it reveals what's in our hearts, the root. So D Jesus teaches us here to take stock of what is in our hearts and what fruit we are producing in our lives. We're going to walk through this passage using the three images Jesus gives, the fruit, the roots, and the harvest. So point number one, the fruit, we see this in verse 33. Jesus had heard how the Pharisees had been spreading lies to the crowd. We saw that back in verse 24. They were saying things like, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And verse 25, he knows their thoughts. He knows the intentions of their hearts. And he has found their accusations to be evil. To those looking for the Messiah, Jesus' fruit, it was on display through his authoritative teaching and through his healings and by the fact that he was casting out demons and proclaiming good news of the kingdom of God, that the Messiah was here. And to look at all that and to call it something that is aligned with Satan is a lie straight from the pit of hell. And Jesus would not have it. And Jesus called out the Pharisees for it. We saw in last week's passage, Jesus discussed the danger of living a life of, un, of unrepentance, of denying Christ. And now he says, look at verse 33 again. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. Jesus says, look, look, evaluate the fruit that you see. I'm going around proclaiming good news of the kingdom, and I'm backing up my words with good deeds, with action, with healing ministry. And the hypocrites, the Pharisees, are producing nothing but bad fruit. You just saw it happen. You just saw the words that came out of their mouth. 
nothing but bad fruits. All, all their deeds, all their tithing, all the good ministry, all the prayers, bad fruit. Well, Jesus gives, gives two pictures of trees, the one that produces good fruit and the one that produces bad fruit. A, a simple principle, but it, very clear. One side, the other side, no middle ground. You see, you're either united to Christ, you're a branch that is abiding in Christ and bearing fruit, or you are a diseased tree, and you're, which means you're doing nothing and will wither away and be thrown into the, the fire. He makes the same point in John 15. And so you can come up with rules like the Pharisees and, you, and we, we can focus on changing behavior and we can through willpower and through self-effort and through self-discipline, we can do good. We can do good societal things. We can feed the poor. We can reduce carbon emissions. We can help the innocent. But as Paul, Paul Tripp helps us, he calls, this, he calls it basically fruit stapling. Taking a diseased, dying tree and going up with good fruit and just stapling it or nailing it onto these trees and saying, yeah, I'm producing good fruit. But the point he makes is, well, the roots haven't changed. You're going to staple good fruit, which are just going to wither up. It's not ever actually coming. Your, 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 your tree is never going to produce good fruit. And so looking at the behavior and trying to change that never gets to the root of the problem. You see, without true heart change that goes down to the roots, we are a bad tree producing bad fruit. That's Jesus' point. And our words and actions will not be rewarded in eternity, and they may actually do severe damage like the Pharisees. Jesus says we're known by our fruit. So the, the best indicator of whether someone has truly been changed from the inside out, by their fruit, by the fruit that they produce. And the people, the people watching this, they would have just been shocked they saw what the Pharisees were doing. They saw what they thought was good fruit. They saw how they devoted their lives to God. And here Jesus sees through their tassels and through their garb and through their supposed good deeds, their external behavior, and he sees, he sees the instances that are most revealing. Look at what just happened a bit ago when they spoke. And it revealed that they were liars, that they were deceitful that they were cheaters, that they were manipulating, that they were seeking to retain their power by denying Christ, the Son of the living God right in front of them. And there was no, no repentance, no genuine faith, faith no conversion. So you get a bad, bad fruit, which means it's a bad tree. But wait, okay, knowing who we are though, how can any of our fruit be good? How can we produce good fruit, Jesus? Aren't, aren't all our deeds like filthy rags, as Isaiah says? Aren't we in Adam bound in sin and we cannot please the Father without faith? How can, Jesus, how can any diseased, dying tree produce good fruit? We see when you come to Jesus in faith, when you turn from a life of, of self-reliance, of self-effort, of self-glorification, when you humble yourself, before the holy God, the creator of the universe, when you, when you come to him in spite of all of your sin, and when you tell him, yeah, I've rebelled against you in your ways, and you repent, and you turn from your ways, and when you put your faith genuinely into the saving power of the gospel through the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ available to you, you will be saved. You will be made a good tree. 
And that is what Jesus means when he says, make the tree good. That's how you do it. It's not by just changing all the fruit in your life and start changing your behavior. It's getting down to the root about who you tr- what you truly believe about Jesus Christ and going to him in humility. That you might become a, a new tree, a good tree that then produces good fruit. Because you know what happens after that? When we get down to the roots and the gospel goes down deep and does its work, when we get a changed heart, when we become a good tree, obedience and good fruit comes out of that. Not, not anything that saves you, but it's something that derives from the Spirit just working in a new creation. There's a little, there's a little tree that's just growing and the Spirit's working and working and working. It's as you abide in Christ and in His Word and you send your roots down deep into Him and who He is and what He taught and in His Word, and you see more and more the worthlessness of sin and the pursuits of this world. And you see the beauty of Christ and who he is and the beauty of his teachings. Your roots just go down deeper and deeper and deeper. And what comes out is more and more good fruit that pleases the Father. This idea Jonathan Edwards calls, 18th century pastor Jonathan Edwards calls, holy religious affections. Seeing the worthlessness of sin, but then turning and seeing just the beauty, the treasure of Christ. Pastor Dane Ortland wrote a book called Edwards on the Christian Life, and he sums up what Jonathan Edwards taught this way. He says, the heart of obedience, it's, it's not summoning up the will to do what it loathes or what it hates. Rather, obedience is fruit. It's the outward manifestation of internal health. So it's, it's what's on the inside coming out in what we do. He says, we naturally blossom because we are planted. We are planted in the soil of the gospel with the sun of divine grace shining down on us. Obedience doesn't come out of a new raw power to now do what we don't want to do. Obedience comes because we now delight we delight, we treasure in doing what we hated before. We love Christ. We love his commands. See, Jesus called out the Pharisees because they were cold-hearted and they had external obedience, but no changed heart. And he calls them a brood of vipers, offspring of Satan or of the serpent, of the evil one. I don't remember calling many people a brood of vipers. But here Jesus uses very harsh language that I think we should be cautious to do, but he uses it because he sees directly into the heart and he sees a hypocrite. He sees the Pharisees who are a bunch of vipers spreading venomous lies, even if on the outside they appear to be holy and good. He sees the Pharisees being something like a, a, a bindweed, if anybody has ever seen one of those, if you gardeners have ever, has ever seen a bindweed, which looks a lot like a morning glory because it comes up and it produces these nice white flowers and it looks kind of like maybe a plow, flower, flower, a flower or a plant and it comes up, but secretly what's actually going on is it's sending roots up to 10 feet down. It sends these roots down And then it goes and finds all the other nice plants and real flowers around and wraps their roots around their roots 
to, to, to take all of their water and to shut them down and destroy them. Meanwhile, up above, they look like nice flowers, but they continue to spread all over your garden and they, they, they suck out the sun and they cover up everything and eventually, and the more they spread, they destroy everything around them and they damage them. And it, I don't know if you ever, ever, I've never tried, but if you try to get rid of these things, because they're like 10 feet down, they're one of the hardest weeds to destroy and to get rid of. And the more you let them work and work and work and spread, the more they infect those around them. And Jesus says, these vipers, what they're doing, just going around infecting everybody. So Jesus speaks harsh words to them. The people who say with their lips that they love God, but deep down all their affection is in everything else, in the gifts, in the worldly pleasures, but not in Christ himself. And he called the crowd to see past all that. And look, just look, look crowd, look, look at the fruit. See whether there's any fruit, whether the obedience of these Pharisees, whether it's derived from genuine faith in God and allegiance to Christ or to self-exaltation. But he also called the crowd and he calls us to self-examination, to examine ourselves. What about the fruit in our lives? Are our actions and our words, are they characterized by love and joy and peace and patience, by kindness, by goodness, by faithfulness, by self-control, by gentleness? You see, true believers are fruitful trees, and the evidence of our faith is the fruit of the Spirit cultivated and displayed in our lives. So think about your conversations this past week, or, or maybe this morning, going back and thinking about your conversations and your words, or the time you spent this past week pursuing other interests, or your social media posts, or, or what you thought about other people's social media posts, and, and what you wanted to say, but you held your tongue, but you wanted to say this, and you wanted to reply to them, or other people's words and actions. Take a look at the heart. And does your fruit reflect a heart devoted to serving the king on his throne? Or a heart devoted to serving yourself on your throne and your priorities? 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? God may reveal in this self-examination that, you, that maybe you never truly were his and that you just still need a heart transplant and a changed heart. And, and the call there would be to come to him in repentance and faith. Or he may reveal to you that there is bad fruit in our lives that we need to repent of. And so we can pray like Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Or he may reveal that you, you are a good tree, but right now you're just being unfruitful. Peter says in 2 Peter 1 to supplement our faith with, with virtue and, and knowledge and self-control, 
with steadfastness, with godliness, with brotherly affection and love to keep us from, from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We go to Him and we're, we're ready to see what He would reveal to us and to respond. Or we go to Him and church, remember this side as well. We go to Him and we hear His words of encouragement. Well done. Well done for your faithfulness and steadfastness. And in that moment, the joy of the Lord will continue to be your strength as you see his pleasure on your life and how you are honoring him. So church, let's examine our fruit. Point number one. Point number two is the root. And so we looked at the fruit. Now Jesus is going to take us deeper and says, okay, you see all that, but let's, let's dig down into the root. Jesus addresses how true believers are known by their fruit. The root of every tree, every person, is their heart. We see this in verse 34 and 35. 34 says, How can you speak good when you are evil? For, or because, notice how Jesus is connecting dots here, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. We see here that, that everything we say, everything that comes out of our mouth, springs ultimately from the heart. And when the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about the core, the steering wheel of our lives, the directional system, the GPS, everything in here where our desires and our passions are located down deep in us that guides our, our thoughts and our words and our actions. So Jesus is saying, you know that the, the Pharisees, what they just said? That was so much more than a word problem. That's, that's a heart problem. That's a root problem. Their words were simply evidence of their hearts, and their fruit was that which grew from their, heart, from their hearts and their roots. And if the roots were evil, then it follows that their words were going to be evil. Paul Tripp explains this well. He says, there's an organic consistency between what is in my heart and what comes out of my mouth. The struggle of words is a struggle of, of kingdoms, a war between the kingdom of self and the kingdom of God. The kingdom that rules your heart will dictate your words. So when we speak, when we open our mouths and say things, we reveal the doctrine of our hearts, the belief of our hearts, what's truly functionally in that moment guiding us. Our words are evidence of the health of our hearts. Our behavior is evidence of the health of our hearts. Jesus says, out of the abundance of our hearts, our mouth speaks. Other translations call it the, the overflow, or what the heart is full of. So it's almost like something's bubbling up in there, it's just got to come out, it's going to overflow, and eventually it overflows in language, in words, and in behavior. And that's the idea behind this treasure language that Jesus then moves to. So he's talking about trees and fruits, and then he starts talking about treasure. He says in verse 35, he says, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And so the word, the word here for treasure kind of has a double meaning. It means both treasure, like things that are valuable, but also like a treasury, or like a storehouse where we keep all of our treasures. Jesus had taught back in Matthew 6, he said, don't lay up for yourself treasures 
on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, located at the core of each one of us is kind of like this, this big storehouse. This big storehouse that keeps all the treasures that we love and that we value. And it's from that that our, our mouth speaks and we act. So for an unbeliever, he's got a big storehouse too. And inside of that is just a bunch of, a bunch of evil treasures, things that they are pursuing. And so whenever they go down and they walk down into their storehouse and then they want to say something, all that's going to come out is something that derives from those evil treasures that they've stored up. It's kind of like if you were to go down to your basement and your, your family has a gathering and you're ready to go get the ice cream and you go down there, you go down to your freezer and you open it up and it's just a bunch of moldy junk in there and there's spiders crawling all over the place and you come upstairs and go, this is all I could dig up. That's all I have in my freezer. It's just a bunch of slimy stuff that's been sitting there for a long time. That's what I've treasured up in my freezer. That's, that's the picture of an unbeliever. But a true believer as a new creation with a new heart, our treasure is Christ. We have counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. Philippians 3. And the moment we did that, the moment we truly did that, our hearts were changed. And we were united to Christ and we were given an everlasting inheritance. Came good trees. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. There, there still exists in each one of us this thing called sin, an indwelling sin. That hasn't gone away. It has, has no more power, but it's present. It has no more power. It's like a defeated foe that just goes around. The war's over, but it's still trying to go around and protect these forts and these strongholds. And it's trying to, in our hearts, it's trying to scratch and claw for different pieces of our hearts and different, different treasures storing up in there. And so within our hearts remains a battle between the new self and the old self. And when, when sin gets a stronghold in our hearts, it starts storing up false idols, treasures that will come out eventually in our speech and in our actions. So, so here's how James puts it in James chapter 4. He says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? And, okay, good question, James. Let me, um, it's, it's other people. <laughs> they cause me to fight and to quarrel, and it's my circumstances. Or, I had a long day at work, and I'm tired, so that's why I said this. Or, they just don't appreciate me enough. They don't respect me enough. And we try to justify ourselves. But look, look, that's not James's answer. Here's what James says. He says, isn't that this? That your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You see, each of us has desires that fight for control of our hearts. Because each of us have hidden idols in our storehouse, idols like comfort and control and, and being right and our reputation and our success. And they rise up. They rise up because we're out of our sin nature. It's still there. It's fighting. It rises up there. But it also rises up because we plant roots down there of jealousy and bitterness and being recognized and being liked. 
and we place them in our storehouses until what's going to happen? Eventually, they're just going to, they're going to grow up and overflow into deceits and gossip and slander and boasting, rotten, stinky fruit that burns and that blisters and that, that poisons and infects. Jesus says in Matthew 15, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder and adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness and slander. See, our behavior and our speech reveal our hearts and what we are treasuring. Because our hearts are treasure seekers. They want treasure, something to worship. Thomas Chalmers, a Scottish minister in the 19th century, puts it this way. He says, he says, such is the grasping tendency, the grasping tendency of the human heart, that it must have a something to lay hold of, and which if, if, if you if rested away, taken away without the substitution of another, something in its place, it would leave a void and a vacancy as painful to the mind as hunger is to the natural system. Oh, it's, that's insightful. So our hearts, oh, they want something to worship. And when, if we want to go in there and, okay, that's wrong, get rid of that. What's our heart going to do? Okay, what's well, going to want to go worship something else and store up another idol? So what's the answer? What's the answer, Thomas Chalmers? How do we reorient our hearts? Chalmers says we need the expulsive power of a new affection because the way to remove those idols that we've stored up in our storehouses is to go down into the darkness where they like to hide and to shine the light of the gospel, the shining light of Christ, and place him, sweep everything away, sweep everything away, and place him in the storehouse as our treasure. Jesus Christ, our treasure. Jesus Christ, I'm getting rid of this and I'm replacing it with a new affection. And we fix our eyes on the worthiness of Christ and the worthlessness of our sin and see that it is his rule. It's his reign. It's his will. It's the value of him that, that far exceeds, that far exceeds the desires of our flesh and the temporary pleasures it offers. That's a heart that's transformed by the Spirit that treasures Christ, that loves Him, that loves His commands, that's going to form roots that are going to go down deep, deeper than our sin ever could. It's going to go down deep and produce grace-filled, grace-motivated fruit. Christ-honoring deeds and words that bless those and give grace to those around us. But to do that, because I want that. I want my behavior and my words to be a blessing to those around me. And I want to, if, really, if I'm really honest, I want to treasure Christ. And I don't in every area, but I want it. I want it. But, but one of the ways we, we, we do this is we need to be aware of what we have down there in the darkness, in those storehouses. What we've stored up. Areas where Christ is not our treasure. We need to ask, what, what's, what's in our hearts? What are we storing up? What are we, what are we cultivating? What, what seeds right now are we planting by what we're, we're reading and listening to and watching and, and thinking about? What are we cultivating? What are we fertilizing and, 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 and growing down there? And what fruit ultimately will they produce? Listen, these, these, are, these are good questions to ask ourselves. Good questions to ask our kids and to think about because their kids only do things because things flow from their hearts. We know that as parents, but 
They're good questions to ask of each other. And here, here's, a, here's a perfect situation, a perfect time to do that, is, is when we gather together, here's one opportunity, we're gathered together, we're about to talk to each other and do things around each other. But, but another moment I would want to highlight is when we gather together in, in our times of community group. A bunch of just broken sinners in need of eyes fixed on a Savior who gather together as a, as a mini little hospital who just say, hey, we're, we're in need here and we need a Savior. And we gather together and in that context, somebody might share with you, yeah, I got angry again with my spouse and with my kids. I did it again. And you pat them on the back and say, oh, get them next time. And you move on to talking about something else. No, no. In that moment, we say, oh, okay, that's bad. But I know a Savior who's pretty wonderful. So let's, but let's, let's think about this a little bit. And we start asking questions because the best way to serve that person when they open up to you about that, yeah, here's the bad fruit that, that in my life is to, to dig a little bit deeper than that behavior and to start getting to the heart and asking those why questions. So it's moments like this. It's, it's moments like your wife disagrees with you and you just say something back disrespectful or you hear somebody about saying that in community group. And, well, why is that? What, what did you want in that moment that made you say that? What were you hoping would happen? These are, these are questions that can serve one another. And so maybe you might find out that this person, they don't feel respected at work, so they come home and they, they just want a little respect around the home. So that's revealing what they said, what they're treasuring up in here. Or you talked about someone when they weren't around in a way that just didn't honor them. Well, why is that? What, what do you value about the people in front of you that would cause you to tear down someone else. Or you're, 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 you're full of fear about what might happen to your kids or, or to your job or to your family or to your relationship. Well, underneath all that, what's going on? What, what's, what's the unbelief that's controlling you and that's driving your fear? You see, we want to help each other get to the underlying fears and anxieties and pride and longings and unbelief that drive our words and our actions. Like an onion, like to, to peel back the layers until we get to the core. So we need each other's help to plumb the depths of our hearts. You see, God wants our hearts. He wants, he wants all of us. And it takes the hard work of plumbing the depths it takes the hard work of keeping, of, of, of guarding our hearts. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And, and that's what we should be pursuing with one another, guarding our hearts by using the word to root out inordinate desires and to point each other to the mercy of God, to reveal our sin to us, and to forget it, to remember it no more, and to transform us into the image of Christ. To one of us, of course there is. But as Dane Ortland says, the real question for us is not whether we sin, or not, we do, we will. The Lord, knowing that he will, he will draw near to us. We cleanse our hands, we humble ourselves, we get, so let's look fine. That's the reward, is that we receive Christ's forgiveness washing over us. The reward is that we receive Christ's forgiveness washing over us. And so let's look finally at point number four, is that we receive Christ's forgiveness washing over us. And so let's look finally at point number three, 
is that we receive Christ's forgiveness washing over us. And so let's look finally at point number three, is that we receive Christ's forgiveness washing over us. And so let's look finally at point number three, the heart is that we receive Christ's forgiveness washing over us. And so let's look finally at point number three, the harvest is that we receive Christ's forgiveness washing over us. And so let's look finally at point number three, the harvest is that we receive Christ's forgiveness washing over us. And so let's look finally at point number three, the harvest that we receive Christ's forgiveness washing over us. And so let's look finally at point number three, the harvest we receive Christ's forgiveness washing over us. And so let's look finally at point number three, the harvest we receive Christ's forgiveness washing over us. And so let's look finally at point number three, the harvest forgiveness washing over us. And so let's look finally at point number three, the harvest. We've looked at the fruit and the root, and now we, Jesus doesn't say the word harvest, but we see that image essentially. We, we see here again in verse 36, something like Jesus said a little bit ago. He says, I tell you, which means listen up. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So Jesus issues a warning to the Pharisees. And then he turns and speaks directly to the crowd as well. That there's going to be a harvest. There's going to be a day when the fruit's ripe, and it's time to pick them. And we will have to account for everything that we've said. He says, by your word, you will be justified or condemned. And so, so the Pharisees' words, they were, they were deliberate. They were calculated. They thought about it. They walked around. They set traps. They were full of deceit. They knew what their aim was. But Jesus, Jesus goes even beyond these deliberate, thoughtful, calculated words. And he says, he says, he says every word. And every careless word. There's eternal implications for what we say in public and in private and in passing. Because the word, the word careless gets at idle words or insignificant or meaningless or unimportant, just down to the things that we just kind of say in passing or to each other in private. Those moments when just, um, just something comes out of a mouth, something just overflows. And it's in those words, so often in those moments that our hearts are most revealed. Because idle words, careless words, they're idle words, idle with an O. Careless words reveal our idols. So it's like, I see this all the time. It's, it's moments like when, when Abby, I'm, I'm not, it's 8.30, kids are in bed, and Abby says, hey, could you do the dishes? I grow in a little bit, yeah. Even those dishes, and I said under my, under my breath, so, but maybe loud enough she, she hears, but yeah, those dishes, they've been there all day long. I saw them there this morning, and, and it's revealing because essentially what I'm saying is, yeah. you mean you spent all day feeding our kids and making food and teaching and discipling our kids and spending time in the morning in the Word and in prayer and keeping this house organized and clean. And you couldn't, 
you couldn't help me get 10 minutes of comfort. 10 minutes where I don't have to do dishes. That's, that's what my words in that moment is, are revealing. I'm going to get up and do it. I'm going to do the dishes. But what, that, those words just revealed something else that's going on in here in that moment. Oh, man. J.C. Ryle says, there's, there's nothing, perhaps, to which most pay less attention than their words. They go through their daily work speaking and talking without thought or reflection and seem to fancy that, that they do what is right. It matters but little what they say. But all words are important. It's by our words, Jesus says, that, that we will be justified. Now, it's not, it's not, we see that we're justified. It's not justification by faith alone plus words. Like, we, if we say enough bad words, then we're going to be condemned. That's not what Jesus is getting at. But it, it's not works religion. But what, what Jesus is getting at is that one day when we stand before the throne, our words will provide irrefutable evidence about who we truly are and truly were at the core. Because words matter. And they matter because they fill every, every moment of our lives. We, we say them, we write them down, we read them, we text them, we post them on Twitter and Facebook comments. And increasingly, we, just, we, see, we see carelessness with our words in our society. We see, we see news stories that are just rushed to the printer. And why am I saying printer? Because all news stories are basically online now, but rush online to get out there and get the story out there first. And then, hey, if there's an error, we'll, we'll correct it. And if, there's a, if people realize there's an error, maybe we'll apologize later. Uh, or, or people just kind of throwing things out on Facebook and Twitter. And then if a lot of people get upset, okay, I'll delete them. But those words are still out there. But they just, it, it's quick, it's careless. Or Facebook comments that are just typed quickly and only deleted if necessary. And, and, and we, we, we comment and we, we discuss. We call it comment and, and analysis and discussion in a way that's actually veiled criticism and, and gossip. Because we all know the power of the tongue. James talks about how it can't be bridled. James chapter 3, he says it's a fire, it's a stain, it's untamable, it's restless. Restless, like it wants to just say something full of deadly poison. That's why Ecclesiastes says there is a time to keep silence and a time to speak, and that a fool multiplies words. So some of us, I know I need to hear this, some of us need to, to, to hear that the, the wisdom of a 24-hour rule, when we, when we read an email or we see a comment or we hear something and we just want to, boom, come out with our comments or our opinion and, and reply, and instead, slow down maybe a day and realize, oh, yeah, maybe that wouldn't have been wise to say a little while ago. Maybe I need to adjust myself before I speak. But it's so easy to multiply our words, to be rapid fire in commentary and opinions. And it's so hard to stay silent in some moments to be slow to speak and quick to hear, to gather information, to calibrate our thinking with the word but it's those who stand humbled before God, whose mouth have been stopped, like Romans 3.19 says, who know that they're accountable to God for how they steward their words, who are the, going to be the most careful with their words. And so on one hand, we, we should tremble. Psalm 141 says, Set a guard, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door, the door of my lips. So on one hand, we, we, gotta, we, we pray that, we realize that our tongues are restless. Lord, just put up a guard. 
There's a big door that just wants to keep flapping open. Help me guard it when I need to guard it. But I don't, I don't think Jesus is simply calling us to just be silent and just, when we leave here today, just stop talking because there's, 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 there's evil that might come out of our mouths. But he's calling us to be mindful of what we say. To, to most importantly in this context, to affirm Jesus and his message and his miracles because that's going to ensure that one day we will be justified. We're going to be declared righteous at the harvest because we said, you are the Christ and you are my Lord and Savior, and I affirm that. And then it's out of that faith that we conform our words to that which builds up as fits the occasion and gives grace to those who hear. And then we speak. Why? Because words that flow from hearts that treasure Christ, they are life-giving. Just, just listen to the Proverbs, what they say. They, they say, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain. What a good picture, a fountain of life. And a gentle tongue is a tree of life. The tongue of the wise brings healing. A word fitly spoken is like like apples of gold in a setting of silver. And to make an apt answer is a joy to a man. And a word in season, how good it is. Doesn't that just get you ready to talk for the glory of God and for the good of others? When my words might actually do that to those around me? When I might be able to throw good peaches at everybody else and they pick it up and go, oh, that's good. And when I know that that's happening. So, so listen, we don't, we don't solely focus. We did it. We talked about it. But we don't just focus on checking our hearts and getting down to the roots and just simply doing that and then spending all our time doing that that we never actually act and obey because because church, God has planted each and every one of us in a sphere. And this church gathered together in community groups, in an office, online, social media, in your blog, around the dinner table this afternoon to speak life from lips that are transformed by the truth of the gospel. This is what happens. These are the words that come out of those, those who plant themselves down into the soil of the gospel daily, who humble themselves, who know the forgiveness they've received through Jesus Christ, plant themselves down there deep, 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 and they see the sun of divine grace shining down on them that though we are men and women of unclean lips, our eyes have seen the King as He's touched us with forgiveness and poured out abundant mercy toward us. How? Because the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. Because the blood of the true Word speaks a better word of avenging justice that our sin deserves, but it speaks a word of mercy and forgiveness. Because the word dwells in you and is with you, and because he has given us his very word, this this right here, his very word that we might love it and walk in it, and that we might fill our mind, our heart, our storehouses with it, and we might treasure it. And so, Lord, may you help us do that. That's our desire. Don't don't leave here this morning. If you're convicted about your words and your behavior and the fruit that's been out there online, go delete that fruit. (laughs) And maybe it's out there, or you can think about this morning, this past week. Yeah, go to the Lord. 
and repent and confess and go to him. But go to him in faith because he's, he is kind and compassionate to us in those moments. And he stands ready to forgive us because he loves us. That's, be encouraged by that. Let's pray. Lord, we want the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. We want whatever we do in word or deed to do, be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you see us. You see how we fall short. We ask, Lord, that you would help us. You would come alongside our weakness, that you would stir up the spirit within us, lead us into repentance out of your kindness. But Lord, may our lives be marked by behavior, by, by words that show that we truly do treasure Christ. May, may, may Christ, you be our deepest treasure. So Lord, would you help us in this moment just to run to you and find open arms, welcoming arms, loving arms. And help the words that we speak here in just a bit, that we sing, that we say to one another, speak life. Be trees of life and fountains of life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.